And good morning. Welcome to The Old School, a podcast about the American education system and sometimes not about the American education system. Uh, I'm Ross Miller, along with Dr. Stephen Bourgeois. Good morning, Herr Dr. Bourgeois. Good morning, Mr. Miller, if, if that is who you are, because, well, you've, you've like changed your look. You've, you've, you've shaved and I, I don't know you anymore, Ross. I'm not nearly as hirsute as I used to be, no, but, uh, <laughs> it's, it's but I do this from time to time in summer hits, you know, I shave the beard and just to make sure that what I thought I looked like underneath it was actually what I do look like. And perhaps the reason why I grew the beard in the first place. Yeah. So, yes, the beard is off. I will tell you, when you shave the beard the first time, the first time a breeze hits your chin, it's quite an exhilarating experience. It throws you. I got I to gotta tell you, it throws you because you're just not used to feeling wind in that particular area. So sure, people are very excited to hear your details on that. <laughs> Listen, I, it's what I do. I give, you know, so. Uh, <laughs> So, um, so I'm wondering what your state of mind is because your beloved PAC 12 is on the verge of collapsing and Oregon is going to be stuck like in the big 12 playing the likes of TCU because work, because Oklahoma and Texas has already left. So I'm just wondering where your state of mind is at this particular moment. It's, um, confusing because I'm, I'm, for the first time, I couldn't tell you which conference many of the top teams are in. It's in. Um, but I, I do think, you know, the the Pac-12, you know, people feared the Pac-12. They wouldn't say it. Um, no one said it. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they didn't want anything to, to do with that. And, and the Pac-12 lives on until Oregon leaves. And then, and then who the hell cares? Question is, where does Oregon go? Well, I mean, is it destined to go the way of USC to the Big Ten, where we get to see, among other matchups, the wonders of USC versus Maryland? Or <laughs> that's just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I mean, the, the caliber of Oregon. I mean, if you look over the past ten or fifteen years, they're they're in the top five or six always. Um, so I, I would say that they need to go to the SEC and shake things up and show them how football is played. Well, no, it's not, it's not going to happen that way. Well, it should. Uh, I mean, they're going to go. Oregon the, would have to adapt to the SEC, one. Second of all, they'd have to rename the conference. Three, well, the, the, the rumor the, has it the Big 12 is heavily courting Oregon and Stanford. Well, they would. I could tell you who's going to win the Big 12 every year if Oregon goes there. You know. <laughs> That, that's easy. Iowa State. Who's that? Iowa, Iowa State. State. <laughs> there's there's not a team that competes. So they'd get a conference championship every year. Uh, there's no no doubt about that. You got to play the likes of TCU. Yeah. Yeah. So what's wrong with TCU? It sounds like you were suggesting there might be something wrong. No, with they're TCU. just they're just suddenly average teams. You know, once A and M left. You know, which is now, Oregon's going to have to deal with teams like them, like Oklahoma State. Yeah. All offense, no defense. Yeah. And so um, it'll be well, fun. All, yeah. <laughs> it could be fun. Yeah, well, the good thing is I'll get to watch their games, you know, because they'll be playing out here. Well, that's true. Yeah. yeah. You get to actually go to an Oregon Ducks game. I've been to Oregon Ducks games plenty. Yes, but not of late. Would you agree? 
Yeah, I've, it's been it's been a few years, but I've, I haven't been to a road game ever. I'm not prosecuting well, you. I'm just saying. I mean, it's like. So so what what's next here, Miller? Because you know, we're we're doing an education podcast, and you've been dodging the issue this whole podcast. What are we actually talking about? The podcast is like three minutes in. What are you talking no, about? We're speculating. Oregon is, is still in the Pac-12 and there's nothing official. And so you're all of this is theoretical right now. There's no way Oregon stays in the Pac-12 if it's the Pac-10 and USC and UCLA is gone. What are they going to stick Pac- around for? Arizona State? Sure. It used to be the Pac-8 back when I was a kid. It's going to be that way again here in a few minutes. So you yeah, just stand it, by. It doesn't matter. They're they're going to change everything to a big tournament with 16 teams. So it won't matter what conference you're in. We have a bigger issue to worry about. Oh, what? My seven-year-old daughter <laughs> wants to do the introduction to the podcast <laughs> the to next this, time we record it. You're talking about this podcast? This podcast. Did you ask her to say that or did she come up with it independently? She came up with it. She saw something on TV and she uh, said, I could do that with your podcast, Papa. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, I guess you could. I said, I have to talk to the surly one of the two of us and ask his thoughts. So you put me in a difficult position. I, I'm going to tell us a seven. Is she seven or eight? Or seven, soon to be eight. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to tell her, no, I'd rather not. Uh, the, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not going to tell her. I said no. No, I know. Um, you, what do you care? I mean, no, I don't. I mean, actually, if you think about it, we, she would be introducing us rather than you. I wouldn't have to sit your, through your introduction and hear a, a, a cute little kid who's probably smarter than both of us um, tee it up. So it seems like an unnecessary shot. <laughs> well, no, I think it's an upgrade. Uh, so by all means, I, I what's wrong with you? No, we can we can use her every week. Um, yeah. it'll, it'll increase our listenership and, and it'll be a little bit classier, I think. For the first few minutes and then they bell out. <laughs> well, <she'll> pretty, <laughs> unless she uses some of those weird words like foibles that you use. Um, you know, maybe maybe that's how you speak around the Miller household. That is how I speak around the Miller household. <laughs> so okay. guess what? I have a seven-year-old that speaks like a okay. three-year-old. Well, you can't prepare her by telling her to talk about the foibles of contemporary education. <laughs> um, so yeah, tell her she's she's hired. So satire on the <laughs> what is satire? Whatever the hell that line is. Uh, speaking more to the heart than the head. Yeah, bring bring her on. Let's let's, all right. Fine, do it. Uh, We'll see. All right, we'll see. Now you're. (laughs) I was. I I gave you a yes, and now you're going to say we'll see. I was a little too excited. You didn't expect that, did you? (laughs) (laughs) Damn it! Now she's going to have to do it now. So yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so. In the past, we have tangentially hit on um, those folks who have, um, or the fact that we have on occasion found ourselves in a position of mentoring younger teachers. Um, I think you probably get tapped for that more than I do, because some people consider my mannerisms a bit Let's say rough around the edges, grumpy, surly, a little bit intimidating. People are flat out scared of you, most. Yeah, and I find that ridiculous, but perhaps, <laughs> perhaps understandable. Yeah. So, in talking about that, this, of course, is the time-honored 
passing on of institutional and professional knowledge from one generation to the next in the hopes that whatever was good about the last generation can continue in some way, in some measure for the next generation. And one thing we've never talked about is about those who we would consider mentors. Uh, on your first years as a minnow swimming through the choppy waters of a rural slash suburban Oregon high school, uh, who were the folks that shone a light that <laughs> revealed a way for you to become a good teacher? It's a complicated question because from the first day I started teaching until the last, I was quite frankly trying to get out of the profession. Um, so, it, you know, seeking mentors for something you wanted to leave behind. <laughs> um, I, was, I was actively trying to do other things, you know, mainly be a professional musician, which I tried, you know, about, well, three times actually. And, um, but, it, but yeah, of course the, the mentors really emerge, you know, throughout different, different times, but it wasn't like, okay, this is my mentor. You know, you have, I mean, my well, does it have to be anything as codified as that? No. Do you, is it, does it have to be anyone that you seek out? No, no. I mean, you're, you're around teachers and administrators all the time. So they, so it's kind of cumulative, I guess, in my case, but I mean, my father was a teacher mm. and when I was in high school for three years back then, I, I went to the same school with my father and we drove to school together. And when we got there, I studied in his office. And after school, I was in his office studying and then I'd go practice the piano and the choir. So, so I was around a, a really great teacher for very, got to see it up close. And so I think that definitely rubbed off on me more, more than anything else. So both of y'all would jump in the car first thing in the morning with your lunch pail and your coffee thermos and head off to work. Yeah. I think for, for two years, my senior year, I drove myself mm. because I had a, my own car, but, but still I, I, I would, I didn't ever have a locker in high school because I just dropped my stuff in my dad's office. It was in the music department and um, yeah, we we drove together, which was uh, great, you know, and quite a routine, you know, get up at the same time, have the same breakfast, get in the car and uh, do our thing. But, but he was, you know, prepared. I guess that's the big takeaway. He, you know, and, and I had him as a teacher, you know, in, in orchestra class and then in, in humanities. So, so I did get to see him in the classroom, not only in a music setting, but in a classroom setting. Um, and, and what and was he, that like having your father as a teacher? Um, it wasn't as bad as you'd think because I, I mean, I was a really good student and I was very shy and just kind of went around, um, when, went on with my business. Mm. Um, but it, you know, it was, I mean, you, you couldn't get away from it. I actually went to that school so I could be in a program that, that he started, which was an interdis interdisciplinary program. Um, where where the, the teachers, there were four of them, had a kind of a flexible uh, arrangement where we had different groups of students. So sometimes I was with him there for that first year, but I also had classes. I took music theory from him. And so 
yeah, I was just a student. I was used, used to it. And it's not like I was a discipline problem where he had to <laughs> tell me things. Um, you know, students were relatively afraid of my dad because <laughs> uh, he, he didn't uh, suffer fools. And so, mm-hmm. but, but no, it, it was, it was great. I mean, he was a great teacher and uh, really ready to teach. He taught, he treated his students like adults, you know, so there was not no nonsense and um, very consistent. I mean, orchestra, we had rehearsals every day and uh, he, he knew how to run a rehearsal. He'd use the time well. And if he needed to call people out and, you know, he, he really hadn't had complete control of, of the classroom, but he was also quite motivational. People wanted to work for him. So beyond your father, which is probably as foundational and as impactful and as important as anybody else in your life. Uh, were there nevertheless individuals to whom you were drawn uh, in your other schools once you left the nurturing confines of Eugene, Oregon, um, you- uh, that's, that served a, if not a similar purpose, but maybe a uh, facsimile of what your father did for you? So are, are you fishing for a compliment for those five years we taught together? And I'm saying, well, I saw Ross Miller teach and that changed everything. Uh, then I knew what a teacher was. I would not be so presumptuous <laughs> as to assume uh, that uh, I was of anything other than just the lackey who shared an office with you. But uh, oh, those, no. are good, those are good times, but uh, yes. no, it was towards the end of a career. But mm. I mean, I, I did student teaching and I, I had a mentor teacher for a semester and I really based my system of teaching German on his, at least you know, for part of my career where you would get to school ridiculously early about 90 minutes before school started. And you would get all of your worksheets and all of your materials together, tests, whatever it is. So you're prepared. And then you, you go in, you have your little stacks of paper and you're, lesson plans. I used an online grading system or I had a computer. It was one of those first performa computers by <laughs> Macintosh or whatever it was. Um, but I, that was cutting edge at, at the time, but I followed his system. And the, I guess the, the big thing that I learned there, you know, teaching German particularly is that you're always creating, you're always creating um, new curriculum, new, new approaches you're adjusting and, but you make it, you know, every year, all the time, you're always creating things. You're not just grabbing something out of a filing cabinet and throw it there. That takes the fun out of it, but it also is is kind of cheating. And so I had that mentality from the beginning that, you know, I, I was going to build curriculum, you know, throughout my career. And that, that's part of the job. Was this something that was purposeful, do you think, on his part? Or does was it just simply the byproduct of having spent time with them and you know you just you learn through observation or did he make it something more uh as i said purposeful um well we we shared an office and i I got to teach a a class really all by myself things were a little different then you Mm. know so i did that from from the start but um i i think the fact that he was always prepared for the whole day meant that he could focus on on teaching and being present with the, with the students and not shuffling around scrambling because we've all done that where sure. you're, you're prepared for one class and 
you have another group coming in and there you are at your computer and typing and the printer is going for the next or, or you'll you'll send a kid to the printer room and you know so you're you're just one one class ahead all day and right. it becomes uh, this stress adrenaline to get get through a single day but, but so yeah. i, I you know, and I think just honoring students by being ready. And, and that's why right. even later on, I didn't get to school, um, you know, 90 minutes before, but I was always there, you know, an hour before students walked in the room. And it's just a, a sign of respect that when you walk in, you're, you're prepared. Hmm. Um, beyond that, no one stands out as far as... <clears throat> as a mentor, as someone who kind of shepherded you along the way? Um, well, I, I'm, I, I've already told the story about a, a, a principal, my first principal, who, who gave, a, gave some pretty good counsel on student discipline and, and how mm. essentially students allow you to teach. And right. you can't take that for granted that, you know, discipline is embedded in everything you do. Um, but I, you know, I, I did a bit of a shift um, when I switched schools after, I think, my first six years of teaching full-time, where I was sent to a conference by the department head and adopted a new methodology for teaching German. It was really opposite of what I did before, which was grammar translation, essentially, where we learn grammar very well. We learned to translate not so much speaking, you know. And with this approach, it's the opposite. It's about you know, uh, gathering vocabulary and uh, through comprehensible input. So lots of storytelling. In fact, there was a system of total physical response storytelling um, where you're thinking on your feet, you're telling stories and interacting with students. And um, but it uh, it changed everything because yeah. um, suddenly my students were successful. And they were getting you know short-term wins and they were happy in class, you know, not having to study for all these grammar tests and worry about the end of a verb for German. <laughs> but they were, you know, I was telling funny stories and and I realized that wow, I'm actually good at telling funny stories. <laughs> um, and so so I didn't, you know, entirely give up on the grammar. I mean, I'm a grammarian and I, I love to teach it, but I but in everything was about uh, acquisition of of oral language um, right so that was a a, a big shift and I, I think the department head uh, embraced that and so he sent me to a conference um you know for a full day with blaine ray is the gentleman's name um, and um yeah it, it 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 shifted so i i actually got fired up about teaching german for the first time with that method okay uh, before I was, I was more interested in getting out to the tennis court after school, you know, so I, I, I would, you know, teach German and I'm being unfair. I was, I was, you know, serious about teaching, but that new method was incredibly creative and uh, probably rejuvenating. That's what it was. Cause it happened at a time, like I mentioned at the beginning, where I was trying to get out um, of teaching, but this, this definitely gave me 10 more years in the classroom. So I, um, I, I guess I could call, you know, that gentleman a mentor, or at least he, he had a, a sense of um, what, you know, what language should be, particularly for the first and second years, you know, because as, as they 
get older, third year, fourth year, you, you, you're starting to prepare for an AP test and, and you take a different approach. But those early years, what, what, I, what I learned, here, here's what I learned, um, is you need to keep students in the program. And, and mm-hmm. I became really good at building programs. I mean, I moved around a little bit. And after my first year at a school, I would double the enrollment in the German program, which is unheard of. Um, and it's because of this methodology you know, the students were, were happy and they were learning. Uh, and also the German exchange program, that combination, um, I was able to double enrollment. And, and you know, when you teach a language like German, French, whatever it is, your job depends on filling seats. Right. You know, if you, if you have enough for three sections or four, you're not a full-time teacher. Um, and, and I didn't have other certifications at that, that point. And so there was definitely pressure, but, but this method, you know, definitely filled seats. And I, I think it helped my relationship with, with students. And you said his name was Blaine Ray. Blaine Ray is, is the, not, not the mentor, but the, he had the, the program for total physical response storytelling. Right. And okay. he's, he's written a lot about it and, uh, but the, the, the method is, uh, I think it's sound because um, students um, actually acquire the language in, in big chunks. And, and if you do a little bit of research on what first or second year language students can do, you know, they can have very short memorized phrases and vocabulary, and that's about it. And so this allowed students to very quickly use the language. Apparently today he has a series of books. Mm-hmm. To kind of explain how this works, yeah, and, uh, he, wrote, and he wrote some readers, and I, I used his his readers, and because reading is really important to that methodology as well, mm. because it's in context. It's not just non sequiturs, little statements that don't mean anything, but the the context is important. So you acquire the vocabulary, and and that's a little bit more detail on uh, methodology than mentoring, but I. I think that you know I, I ran into the right people at the right time to, to keep me in, in that profession. Right. Hmm. And and what about you, Herr Miller? I know you you've had more of a formal mentor at an early stage. I did, although I would suggest to you uh, that perhaps my first professional mentor was before I was a professional. It was like you. It was my father. My father was a minister for a short time. Uh, in between gigs as a machinist, that was his trade. And um, he had a natural gift for holding people's attention. And he did so without bells and whistles. I mean, it's not like he had gadgets or what have you to be able to try to capture people's attention. He simply had the spoken word. And because of that, uh, he is somebody who, from the onset, I recognize as someone who I could listen to all the time. He pushed the idea of reading, you know, he pushed the idea of learning, the idea of taking it seriously. And he he just had one of those voices. And there are people that I have encountered or seen or heard uh, that I could listen to forever. I could just, and, and, and and I would never be bored, whether it was my father, whether it was an early teacher by the name of Mr. Richardson. He's one of my world history teachers in high school. Richard Harris, the actor. I, mean, I could listen to Richard Harris. I, I loved Richard Harris. You know, I loved hearing him speak. And so the notion of having the talent to, I don't have it, 
whatever talents I may or may not have, <laughs> I do not about? have the talent. No, you're you're a, you're a you're a captivating speaker, and and you you hold court, and, and so you're being um, overly generous. Well, <laughs> I certainly have a knack for a short period of time. But these are but these are individuals who had a talent that transcends, you know, momentary. Uh, 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 momentary instances of of captivity of the audience okay you're, but, you know, you're, stum- but, you're stumbling around a lot now yes. now i see what you mean yeah okay. yeah so i'm i'm, a, I'm <laughs> damn near inarticulate so yeah, basically <laughs> <laughs> so but no but my father was the first one who kind of taught me what it meant to be in front of a group of people mm-hmm. to 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 kind of hold court in that way uh but also to kind of push the notion of reading of knowledge of scholarship and this is partly my father's tradition. This is partly a Jewish tradition, which I maintain that, you know, a, a, a component of Jewish history and culture is the acquisition of knowledge. It has always been hand in hand with the faith. Uh, and so a lot of it kind of goes into that. As far as my first professional, it was in my first gig. Uh, and his name was Gary Whalen. He was a Vietnam vet. Um and is a Vietnam vet. Uh, and, um, and he just, he, he was the first person to kind of show me the politics, the inner workings of a school. He was the person that first taught me that you handle your own classroom discipline issues. You don't send notes to the office. You take care of it yourself. You have the capacity to do it, do it, Uh, At times, he could also teach not to take myself too seriously. You know, I think one of the the first years I was teaching, I I was teaching world history and I had, I thought, the students in the palm of my hand as I regaled them about one moment of history or another. And he opens, he comes to my classroom. He's got a newspaper in his hand. And he said, and I'm again, I'm in the middle of regaling my students. And I said, yes. He said, he looks at his newspaper, he's doing the New York Times crossword puzzle. Yeah. He said, five letter word starts with a J. The clue (laughs) is the state sport of Maryland. I said, uh, it's jousting. He goes, jousting? Jousting? I said, yeah, well, joust, I guess is five letter word. He goes, all right. And then he just left. And I remember thinking, that one, what a bizarre moment. It was my first year as a teacher, but two, also to kind of, because it cracked the kids up, they got a giggle out of them. A couple of them knew him as a teacher. And it was just one of those things where you learned that sometimes it's not all about trying to be serious and, and, you know, that you can use humor to kind of break up a class that you can use humor to maybe uh, interject some life into a class to maybe, make something more memorable. We've talked about this, the notion that humor correctly applied can be a great motivator, can be a great uh, facilitator of learning things. And so it becomes, it just becomes one of those things And he had a knack for dealing with students. And he, like your mentor, talked about the notion about your, your, your father, um, that the notion of treating kids like adults and He was also the one who taught me that whatever that kid is doing in class, in all likelihood, is not about you. 
It's about something else going on in that kid's life. And I was working in a pretty rough school or what a lot of people coined a rough school. Mm-hmm. And he really allowed me to see that aspect of the job differently. Okay. Um, the second school I went to, I ran into a department chair of social studies by the name of Dan Lamb, Daniel Lamb. And Dan Lamb was an institution at the school. He had been there since 71. And he had been a football coach. He had been a history teacher. He had basically been in that school for the last 30 some odd years. And he was the one who kind of helped me see, you know, if if Gary Whalen allowed me to see my profession from a macro level, school politics, dealing with kiddos, whatever the case may be, Dan Lamb helped me see my profession from a micro level, talking about it in terms of history. How do you approach history? How do you approach the telling of history? How do you approach the study of history? And he allowed, he kind of opened some eyes and opened some doors to allow me to see that there's a way that you can present history that might be better off for the kiddos. And one of them was simply the idea of getting away from lecture. This is, you know, towards the end of my time with him, I had started to pivot away from lecture and more towards conversation. But he was instrumental. He was also instrumental in helping me put history to work, you know, because I think a lot of times kids see history as a passive activity. Something that's boring. Well, boring and and not connected to anything, not relevant to anything. And I'm the first person to say, and we've talked about this before, not everything you learn in school has to be relevant for it to be important. But the notion that there was a relevant aspect, the notion of the idea of local history, he and I produced a video that talked about the history of the neighborhood that we were in and uh, in general and of the school in particular, which I think at the time that I was there, about halfway through my time there, they were celebrating their 100th anniversary. It was a it was an old school. It had a long history and reputation. And then um, and not to not to suck up to you, but I think together you and I learned a lot of things with regards to technology. If if it's if it can be said that I have a particular um, bent on it with regards to technology in the classroom. That's something that you and I, I think, discovered together. Um, you may, you were probably further along. I think by the time I showed up uh, to, to the school that we were in, that, you know, it struck me as odd, but I didn't really know how to put my finger on why it was so odd and why it was so potentially problematic. But as you said, we spent five years in an office together and that lends itself to a lot of conversations Um, And I think that that, too, probably has something to do with where I am today, you know, whether it is, um, uh, you know, learning how how to navigate school politics, what, you know, or, you know, how better to approach (laughs) my subject or simply to kind of understand trends and understand what is a trend, what what makes a trend helpful or hurtful and that's kind of where we are today. But the idea that these are individuals that played a major role in how I think about stuff and how I approach things today. Well, I, th- I think that these relationships kind of come at different, different times. 
Um, but you, you mentioned politics, and I, I think there is something to be said, particularly for younger teachers, of how to be a, a faculty member and to be comfortable in a, in a school, because that's where you're spending eight hours, nine hours of each day, and you need to be able to enjoy it. Uh, enjoy your your fellow teachers, enjoy the students and um, everything that surrounds it. And, you know, uh, I think being around teachers, you know, for me growing up, I mean, my dad's friends were all teachers. And so mm. I, I, I knew how they, they carried themselves. And um, but the, the teachers were very interesting as far as their background. And uh, I guess that's something that I picked up and and we've we had a episode about this actually um that the teachers who are my dad's friends had had so many interests outside of their subject right and so they had deep expertise in 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 different areas that that never even came up um that that you 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 see these i i guess you would call them role models for year and year and year um and you you do develop this respect for the profession because these are teachers that that taught for their whole career. And um, today you think about a, a teacher who wants to become an administrator. So they teach a year or two. You don't see these lifelong teachers. You know, it's, it's becoming more and more rare. I mean, you know, half of teachers quit the profession during their first five years. And that number is probably even more dramatic today. Um, so I was seeing these dinosaur teachers who had been in the classroom. The, it's like the school was built built around them, literally. Right. right. Um, and and they had uh, a confidence. There was some reverence of them, and that I guess was appealing, um, just to see the the stature of a teacher who's been there for so long. And that is when you look at the younger generation and it is easy for old people like us to sit there and make broad oh, generalizations yeah. about young teachers, yeah. but you do seem to see, you don't seem to see the disparate level of knowledge, you know, as far as, you know, varied types of knowledge, you don't seem to, recognize the same kind of attitude that perhaps those dinosaurs that you grew up around may have entered the profession as now of course we weren't there when they were young maybe they were just as capricious and maybe they were just as uh, clueless about what they were doing but over time you grow into your skin you grow into your job and you become by fact of doing it every single day you become a much confident, a much more comfortable individual. And that carries out and that comes through when you interact with kiddos or when you interact with anybody else. Um, it would be interesting to think about those, um, those teachers uh, uh, that you were surrounded by, yeah. what they would have been like, what their progression was like. Well, I, I think the, the common thing is that they enjoyed being around students and um, it's like a little light goes off, you know, when, once you stop being afraid of students and trying to manage them, but actually enjoy it. I mean, my, my dad used to take attendance and, and he would call attendance. I thought that was a little odd because they're right in front of them. Um, <laughs> and this wasn't in, in one of my classes, but a friend of mine had him as a teacher. <laughs> there, there was a, a girl whose name was April Parrish. 
Okay. Uh, and April Parish. And so when he would call her. Hello, hello to April Parish. Yeah. That's she's she's right. probably listening right now. I, I hope so. Um, so instead of calling her by name, he would say April in Paris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a couple people would get the joke and laugh and she would kind of get a little embarrassed and the light started to flicker for me because you know I always call attendance, you know, because you right. have kind of a informal, weird conversation with with every kid. And that inner, you know, the the light flickering is that you can tease students if you do it in the right way. Right. And it's really delicate, but it, but you right. you get a feel for how to do it. And then the light comes on and, and it's a light classroom and, and you enjoy it and they're, and they're happy and people learn and remember more when they're in that happy state. But you know, most teachers never get to that comfort among students. And I think, you know, that, that's the commonality of, of that group of kind of older teachers is, is that they, they got to that stage where they're comfortable with faculty members, but more importantly to be in a room with, high school kids and have it give you energy rather than tense you up. And I think that that's one thing that I've learned over the years as well. The idea of the subtle, gentle ribbing can create a camaraderie that exists within the class. Now you talk to you, you, you interview any one of my classes, you'll have some kids that like me and some kids that don't, that's just the nature of the beast. But when you have the silly kid in class, give a silly answer. And then you follow that up with, you're not allowed to speak for the rest of the class, <laughs> you know, you know, and it's just a gentle little rub. It's not, you know, it's not directly putting somebody down, but they clearly meant it as a joke. And so you mean it as a joke, you know, those things are things that tend to stick with somebody. Well, and, and, you know, you get, you get notes and you get cards at the end of the year and students yeah. are always gracious to do so. I don't think I ever did. No. And I don't think any of my friends ever did. I find it very fascinating that so many kids feel comfortable writing notes to their teachers at the end of the year, or perhaps at the conclusion of their high school career, but you'll hear teach, you'll hear students talk about that the way that you asked us how we were doing, the way that you would tease us sometimes, the way you would bring up certain topics in your class. And, and I think that's when you, that's the good stuff. That's when you know that maybe you don't suck after all as a teacher, because yeah. some days you do get that sense. God bless it. I just, I just set teaching back 10 years today, you know, but then you get those notes and you say to yourself, maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought. Well, yeah, and and you don't have as much control of the quality of your lesson as you think you have some. Sure. But the the, the students, you know, one principal um, mentioned, you know, think about the the students in your class, and some of them just to to get themselves to school that morning uh, is nothing short of a miracle that, that they could even do it. But they're having good days and bad days and everything in in between. But they notice, you know, a little bit of kindness, you know, give them a break sometimes when you sense they they need it. Um, but yeah, so I, I think we we have had mentors, and I'm you know I've, I've not mentioned a lot of them that happen at different times, particularly with respect to the German Exchange Program. You know, I had the founder of that program uh, actually mentor me formally for you know, about five years, you know, showing me how to lead groups of students. Um, and, and so, so these, you know, at least for me, the theme was that when I'm about burned out, 
you know, the mentor would emerge and mm. kept me there to, um, you know, for 20 years. So, so mm. I'm, I thank them for that. Well, uh, as we wrap up yet another, uh, uh, stimulating, titillating, um, episode of the old school, um, uh, we, um, we stare off into the coming months as we get ready for yet another school year next month. I thought you were retiring. Uh, at least from me. <laughs> again. I thought you were retiring. I thought they were done well, with you. No, no. I'll do one more year and then then it's I'm like an old boxer. Away. Yeah, one more fight. <laughs> one more fight. Um, you don't have it in you, sir. You don't have it. You can't do it. You can't take it anymore. Um if you take one more shot to the end, you have to stop now. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to, I was trying to exercise my inner Burgess Meredith. Yeah, uh, it, wasn't, as, it, wasn't, it wasn't working. <laughs> no, it wasn't. So, <laughs> so um, but you know, we, we have some pretty good topics coming up ahead and the, uh, the rest of the summer and hopefully uh, people and uh, people enjoyed the European musings uh, that, uh, are now part of the podcast. Little little silliness in that uh, in those two episodes. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, I, I, I thought they were very very serious. I was seriously afraid for my life and uh, <laughs> part of that. And now you have to sit here and think about the demise of the Pac-12. Okay. And the relevancy of Oregon as a national power in football. I'm excited about just the idea that football will happen. Just mentioning the word means there there is hope. It's like time suspends itself for the next month. Um, but but you, the more we talk about it, you realize it's like looking at the milk carton and seeing that date. Yeah. It's going to yeah. happen. It's going to happen. Well, at that note, uh, we shall bid adieu. Uh, Herr Dr. Bourgeois. Wiedersehen, Herr Miller. <laughs>